Hello, everybody. It's the podcast To Hell and Back. It is the uh, 19th of December, 2019. And as usual, I'm in Northampton, Massachusetts. I'm sitting between my two dogs. I hope they don't cause a lot of trouble here. Their names are Cash and Lola. If you hear me go into a spasm about Cash or Lola, that'll help you understand. And also, for those who can see, or even if you can't, I'll describe it, just tell you, we're heading into the holiday season. And though this is not, this podcast today is not about the holidays. The last one was. I just want to highlight the, um, uh, the uh, you might call it the dialectic, uh, that this is, uh, we're heading in at the same time to Hanukkah and Christmas. So uh, here's a uh, Christmas cookie. Uh, this will also highlight how too busy I've been the last week. Last weekend, I made Christmas and Hanukkah cookies, assuming I would decorate them with frosting this week. And the, I've put off the decorating and frosting until this weekend. And now, lo and behold, they're mostly gone. So I'm going to have to make more. So here's, the, uh, here's a Christmas tree, if, you can't, if you're just listening to the podcast. So Merry Christmas to everybody. Here is a menorah uh, cookie. So happy Hanukkah. And here's the dialectical synthesis between Hanukkah and Christmas. It's a heart. Um, so heartfelt gratitude to everybody who listens to these. And I hope you have a really a, a wonderful year coming up. Um, because my next podcast is not until next year. Um, next week is the day after Christmas and the following week, the day after New Year's Day. And I've decided I'm taking both of them off just during a block of time where I'm taking off. Um, so my next one will be January 9th. And on January 9th, I don't know what I'm going to talk about yet, but I will uh, send out announcements of that and it'll be on my website. And then I'll say again, if you haven't listened to the last one or two podcasts, uh, that January 16th, 23rd and 30th for three consecutive hours, I'll be having a detailed conversation with Seth Axelrod of Yale University, a DBT expert. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk not, well, not, not directly at first about DBT. We're going to talk about his experiences coping with having cancer the last few years and the treatments of cancer, which have been pretty hard. And I haven't had this conversation with him yet. So it'll be fresh to me too. And the idea is to learn something about the particular nature that, of what he's been through, because it'll probably overlap with a lot of people. And, and to talk with him about, by the third one, what kind of strategies or what kind of skills or what kind of maneuvers has he used to cope with the uh, hellish experience, uh, beginning with getting the diagnosis and then going through everything he's gone through and with still an uncertain future. Um, so well, that'll be this beginning on January 16th. Okay, um, today is a um, picking back up with a podcast I did two weeks ago called What's the Point? So this is What's the Point Part Two. And What's the Point gets at when you're asking that question in life, what is the point of my life? What is the point of my day? What's the point of going to work? What's the point of this relationship? What is the point of doing anything I do? What's the point of baking holiday cookies or having my dogs with me? What is the point? And because I, I uh, 
I want to talk about the um, negative experience of uh, feeling like things are pointless, uh, which can present in various forms. And I'm going to talk about forms in which it presents. Uh, and then I'm going to get to uh, various approaches to pointlessness. But of course, as I'm going to emphasize, approaches to pointlessness are going to depend a lot on what the nature of the pointlessness is what the causes and conditions are that led to the pointlessness feeling. Um, but I want to say first, I want to jump in kind of to the core of the question about what's the point. This is not going to be true with every single person. What's the point is a perfectly good question. But if you're having that kind of tortured experience in which you say, what is the point? Why go on? Why do anything? I think one thing to say about it is there is rarely a good answer to that question. There's just rarely a good rational answer. I mean, there are 8,000 rational answers, reasons for doing this and reasons for doing that. But to the person that's actually in that experience, in that state of mind, you know, and they think about it usually and think, what is the point? And they wake up thinking about it and they wonder what is the point? And the more they ask the question, the worse it gets because there really isn't a rational answer to what's the point. Um, what's the point? To be in the state of mind out of which you ask the question, what's the point, probably means that your state of mind is some version of alienation to begin with, or being an outsider in life, or being disconnected from people who might otherwise matter. Um, being removed. Um, being uh, disenfranchised in some way that that really that question asking that question often is symptomatic of a state of mind and and the best response to it is not necessarily to come up with 15 answers all of which will be will not do it i mean i've done this a lot i mean what makes me an expert to talk about this well i'm not really an expert to talk about this i mean that's the thing about podcasts anyone can do a podcast now um, but I certainly, I've wrestled with these things myself, so I'm an expert from the inside out about this in life. I've had my episodes of pointlessness. I'm an ep expert from the point of view of treating a lot of people who have, ha have been through this, some of whom are in it for years and years and years. Um, and, I'm in, and, I, and I'm not an expert in that I'm just curious about this. And the whole point of me doing podcasts beginning two and, two and a quarter years ago was actually wasn't to have all of you listen. I had no real conceptualization that people were actually going to listen very much. I really had the conceptualization that it would make me think more deeply about things I'm trying to think about. Because then I would have to say stuff for an hour, which kind of almost by definition makes you have to think of a lot of stuff, you know? So, so I've been thinking about pointlessness, not only my whole life, but for a few weeks. So uh, you ask that question and it, I think often it's symptomatic of the condition that you're in. And then the question becomes, how did you get in that condition? And I'll get back to that. And, and the way to get out of it is usually not to find a rational or verbal answer. Usually the way out if there's a way out, however it happens, and it can happen in a hundred different ways, is that you engage. You engage with something. You engage, uh, you connect. 
You connect with someone or something. Uh, you participate in DBT. You participate in something. And during the time that you're engaged and during the time that you're connected and during the time that you're participating, usually you don't ask the question, what's the point? Because you're busy engaging. And so I, I think the main answer, if there were one answer to a lot of the times that people feel, what's the point? But again, like I say, it depends on the causes of that situation. But often the answer is get engaged. So I said last time, if you listened to podcast of one, two weeks ago, I went through a series of guidelines that I had come up with. They're my guidelines about this, but one of them was get moving. Expose yourself. Build a fort. Draw. Get out of your house. Get out of your head. Get out of your thoughts. Get into your body if you're caught in your thoughts. Get into your thoughts if you're caught in your body. It really is kind of do something because I think movement is the opposite of the, of, of the question, what's the point? Because if you start moving, which by which I mean more than just moving, I mean doing different stuff, uh, trying different stuff, making yourself do it, who knows what you might come across? And don't be conventional in doing it. Don't do what someone else thinks you should do. Because then you get trapped. What's the point in doing what so-and-so thinks you should do? I'm remembering a, a young woman, 24 years old, severe anorexia nervosa from the time she was 16, in hospitals from the time she was 18. And I met her when she was 24. And we had a conversation that included, how did this all come about? I said, let's look at this whole episode of you becoming anorectic and, and talk about it in a big way as an epic in your life, the anorectic epic. Like, how did this come about? What was going on when you were 16? Well, it was interesting. She was a uh, championship swimmer, like state level champion, maybe beyond. She had dreams of being beyond that, like Olympic level. There were apparently reasons for her to actually realistically think of that. She was a straight A student. She was a perfectionist. She had a mother who was a perfectionist. Um, she was really pushing herself. She went to a doctor when she was 15, her doctor. And her doctor said, oh, the results today look really good. Your BMI is down. If you don't know what a BMI is, it's body mass index. And that means that she weighed less. So the doctors, and she said she never before that thought about the fact that it mattered that her BMI, which she didn't even know what it was, would be down or that her weight would be down because she was mainly focused on that she was an incredible athlete and she was focused on her body in a functional way. But now, after this doctor made this comment, which was actually meant to be a positive comment to her, but it actually highlighted, oh, I didn't realize my BMI was too high. Uh-oh. And it got caught in her like a spiral in her brain, like it does with anorexia sometimes. And it became an obsession. And by the time she was 18, she started entering hospitals 
and she was in hospitals. Also, what made her so vulnerable for this happening? Probably her biology, which is something we'll never know for sure. But also in her family. When she was 14, she learned that her father was having an affair with another woman. Then her mother learned about it. She knew before her mother. Then her mother blew up and the two of them went through a very conflictual period. Then they decided to divorce by the time she was 16. But they stayed living together, married, because it wasn't worked out yet for two more years, during which he continued to be not faithful, during which this young woman knew that, during which she was told, don't tell your little brother and sister because we don't want them to know until we've decided that, about the divorce and, and we'll announce it. So she held a secret in the family. So she was really in deep trouble in a certain sense, contextually. She was the holder of secrets. She knew first about the infidelity. She knew not to tell her siblings. She was a very special person in that respect. Um, and, and during this time, her eating disorder took off and she became anorexic. And really, it got so bad, I can't even describe to you how bad it, by the, by the time I saw her, I was seeing her because she wasn't going anywhere. Her anorexia was killing her, and she was in a hospital. And she experienced a sense during high school. She said, I used to have a point. I wanted to be an Olympic swimmer, and I just got a lot of good credit for being a swimmer. And I was a good student, but I really loved swimming and all of that. And she said, after all of this was happening, and also with my parents, I just felt like, what is the point? And she herself used that sentence. I started asking, what is the point? Why am I doing all of this? And then she dropped swimming. And then her grades dropped. She did finish high school. Um, and then she um, started focusing her life 100% on how thin can I get? And she focused on that and she kept doing that until it became like a pathology in her brain, which is the way anorexia is a complicated phenomenon. It isn't as simple as I'm describing, but once it's there, it has its own whole momentum and very hard to get out of that she was doing that. So I wanna make another point about what's the point, is that when a person experiences that experience, and especially if it lasts over time, two points about this actually, of what's the point. It came from somewhere. It didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't come out because somebody happens to be a philosopher at age 16 or 18 or 20 or 25. My dog. Um, it, it comes out of somewhere. There's a historical context. There's a biological context. There's an interaction between the two. There's a family context out of which these things come. And some, or there's a, a trauma context, or there's a loss context, or there's a depression context. There's some context out of which the question grows, what's the point? The feeling grows, life is pointless. And at that point, it can go any number of ways, which I'll get more into. So one point I wanna make about this anorexic young woman. Lola, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, is that um, it comes from somewhere. And, if you, and that actually is a helpful construct. When you're in pointlessness, it's like a fog. You're caught inside something that you can't see very clearly from the outside in. Other people can see from the outside in. Oh my God, he's caught or she's caught in pointlessness. 
but actually you're in it and you're just thinking about stuff and you're caught in it and thinking about it doesn't get you out of it. Sometimes it complicates it. In fact, if I sat around, I was thinking this today, if I sat around and said to myself a hundred times a day, what is the point? Like within a week, I could probably generate this state in myself because actually there is a core set of thoughts attached to it. So I could probably generate that. Um, gosh, there was a second point I wanted to make about this story about this uh, young woman. Um, I'll probably think of it later. You guys, you're really stuck listening to a heck of a podcast with somebody who's so unprepared that he can't even answer his own question. <laughs> remember, so sorry about that. Um, all right. Before I jump into actually what I've prepared for today, let me just think if there's anything else I wanna say. You know, one thing I wanna say is that in my own episodes of pointlessness in my life, and in the episodes I've known of other people, there's almost always an identifiable context. I don't mean one single trigger, but people I've known have experienced pointlessness after a while because they're in a job that's a complete mismatch with who they are. And they're doing it because, you know, I've known somebody who was po felt life was pointless, was 20 years into a state job where at 30 years you get uh, fully vested in your retirement plan. So it's just counting the days. Um, if another person is, feels life is pointless once they get married, like I know a person who's, has, who's married is uh, Hasidic. I've consulted about this person some time ago. This person who's married and Hasidic, but actually um, doesn't want to be married, but that's unacceptable. So this sort of attachment to what should be because this, the particular community or society says you should do it and you get in to do it and it's the right thing to do. And as a person with a job, actually it's a person who had 10 children at the time and he was very busy and everything, of course. And, and he thought, what is the point? And if you looked at this man from the outside in, you'd say, wow, if there's ever anybody who had a point, here's a devoted practitioner of uh, very adherence to, uh, um, to being Hasidic and also to living the life of that and to doing everything you're supposed to do. And he felt life was pointless. And I think there's often, when I said at the beginning that I think in depth, that when you are asking the question, what's the point? You're one way or another disconnected. You're one way or another disengaged. There's some kind of mismatch going on and you don't know how to get out of it. Okay, so those are the main points I wanted to make before I now make some um, more organized. I call that, those of you who've watched or listened to my podcast very much know that I sort of go in and out of disorganized periods, which are probably my more creative moments and then uh, more organized periods which I'm about to do, so buckle up. All right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna bounce back and forth between some notes and my extemporaneous mind. But um, so here's what I wanna tell you that uh, more of an outline, the rest of these, the next 40 minutes, what I'm gonna try to do. I wanna talk about um, different types of, of experiences of pointlessness. 
because really to blend all of this together is really to blend a huge different kinds of experiences together. So I at least want to subtype it a little bit. Then I want to talk about the, uh, the fact that pointlessness grows out of causes and conditions and that there are controlling variables that I think lead to pointlessness and that perpetuate pointlessness. So I want to talk some about assessing the state of, of pointlessness, whether it is your own state of pointlessness you're looking at or that of somebody else that you care about. So I think if you can uh, assess some of the controlling variables, I don't think you, I think pointlessness is a state of mind of a kind that you can't just get yourself out of. I think you actually have to address something, do something different about the controlling variables that keep perpetuating it. So if you just sit there in a room and think your way out of it, you're probably thinking your way deeper into it. Um, so what are some of the controlling variables and therefore I, I'm going to move from that kind of assessment to a variety of uh, possible solutions, which of course have to be different with different people, but I just want to at least take a stab at talking about um, some of the uh, possible solutions for it. Um, and of course, this is one of those things where it's such trial and error uh, about what's going to help a given individual have a different state of mind that, you know, there's, it's, it really is trial and error. But if you have a lot of ideas or different things to do, it might give you a better chance. By the way, those of you who know a lot about DBT, I was thinking about like, how can you transpose DBT onto this problem? Because this isn't a discrete behavioral problem. DBT really grew up around solving the problem of suicidal behavior and self-harming behaviors. And then it sort of expanded to include substance abusing behaviors and then eating disorder behaviors. And then it expanded to include borderline personality disorder where there's a variety of behaviors, right? So, but it isn't a, a discrete behavior. So I just want to say, while I'm thinking of it, I thought the closest analogy within the world of DBT of using that as a system or a framework for solving the problems in pointlessness is addictions. Because addictions isn't any one specific problem either. It is a complex. It is a state of mind. It is a set of activities. It's a way of feeling, a way of thinking, a way of having a social life. And pointlessness really has all of those things. It is made up. It is a complex syndrome, if you want to call it a syndrome, that includes a way of thinking or several ways of thinking, a ways of acting that, that sometimes actually keep perpetuating the way of thinking and the way of thinking keeps perpetuating the way of acting. And then um, certain emotions that go along with it, which are, can be very frustrated and very uh, empty and very uh, hopeless kinds of experiences. Uh, and then social experiences that can go along with it. So it's more like addictions. And within the world of addictions, when you apply DBT to substance use disorders, you do break that complex pattern uh, of substance use you break it down into um, discrete behaviors. And the first thing that you do with substance use, like maybe those, some of you know this, some of you wouldn't know this, but when you, when you try to tackle substance use in DBT, it's, it's a lot of different behaviors. It's a whole pat, set of patterns and you prioritize those and you start tackling the one at the top. And the one at the top, the first sub target 
of the large target of treating substance use or addictions is uh, that you actually is stopping the stopping the addiction. That sounds like the end of treatment, but it's actually the beginning of treatment. Stopping the addiction now exposes you to everything that is reinforcing the addiction to begin with, and now you tackle those things one at a time. That's sort of the over, overview strategy. I've actually done podcasts before on treating addiction, so you could look back if you were interested. But how does that work with this? I would think, just analogizing from substance use, that when you take a complex pattern that takes over your life, like pointlessness, which actually can lead to suicide or just lead to a very unsatisfying life, that probably that thing at the top of the hierarchy that you would first do, that if you analogized it to substance use, would be you've got to start acting not pointless. You've got to stop acting point, like life is pointless. So you've actually got to probably act opposite the way you feel. You probably have to start saying, okay, you may feel pointless. You may have a whole philosophical context in which life is pointless. You may feel like life is pointless. You may feel hopeless about things. But you know what? Why don't you start acting as if there's a point, even if it's the smallest point, even if it's you, it's you do whatever you're inclined to do. I told you guys, if you listened to two weeks ago to the first part of this two-part podcast about a young man who had to get out of the financial services business in New York City because he was, it was getting him so pointless and so depressed. And he'd get up and he was quite successful at it, even in his first year. And then what really turned the corner for really his whole life, because it was an unusually successful turning point for him, was that when, uh, with my encouragement, he found a way to get three months off. And during those three months, he, j I just, he said, so what should I do? I don't want to waste the whole three months. I said, that's an unfortunate way of thinking about it. You're not going to waste anything. Do what you feel like doing each day and let's see what comes out of it. Like just take stuff on, anything. And then it turns out that he did a lot of walks in nature because he loved the outdoors and he loved going in nature. And, and the, I don't want to tell the whole story again, but he ended up within the year, he was then working for the U.S. Forest Service in Oregon, living in a cabin that he lived in for many years and in which he was very happy, not making very much money, not having very many friends at first, though he developed kind of, I don't know, friends through being on a ski patrol and then fixing trails. But really he got out of a pointless state by dropping everything of what he was doing and just experimenting. And once he did that, he was not acting like there's a point in life. Well, the point in life today is actually to take a hike through those woods that I've never been to before. And it turned out he liked those things. So it started to get his brain active in a way that, you know, could have stopped again if he went back and then he decided to quit. Uh, and he moved on. So when I get into the solutions, I'm going to tell you right now, the first set of solutions, this is very DBT-ish, are going to be solutions that come from the um, acceptance strategies and acceptance skills of DBT. Because I think, and I'll get back to it, but the, the, the concept of accepting pointlessness before you try to change it, or even if you don't try to change it, but to more effectively accept your experience that life is pointless may sound to some people like, wow, you're just digging yourself in deeper, but actually you're already in pretty deep if you're trying to not do that. But if you just accept it, it's sort of like accepting chronic pain. 
it's like accepting that you do have an addiction, which is the beginning of the treatment of an addiction. I mean, so it's accepting that you do in fact experience pointlessness. And then I think there's more uses of other strategies and skills of acceptance. The next, and then I think I'm gonna talk about other types, uh, other ways to change the situation. One is to change the context. Another is gonna be to change biology. And another one will be uh, just a, a range of DBT strategies and skills that come out of the manual and come out of practice of DBT skills and strategies. And if I get to it, I'll talk a little about a dialectical approach. Because if you know DBT at all, or if you partly know it, this will be helpful. If you know it, it'll be a waste of time for me to say it because I'll be quick about it. But really DBT is an interesting system, not just to do individual psychotherapy. It's an interesting system to look at uh, using compassion and effectiveness to change any system and to change any person about anything. It probably could be applied well to my dogs, though I'm not doing it very well tonight. Um, and so there's three main categories of things you can do. Various means of acceptance, various means of change, which centers around solving problems, and then dialectics, which sort of sits between the two as a balancing act like a teeter-totter. Okay, so types of the problematic states of pointlessness. I really broke it down to three as I thought about this the past week. Um, one was, uh, I'll just call episodic, is that um, it comes and goes. And my guess is if you really ask people to look carefully at their own experience, my just this is total guess and I don't mean to overstate this, um, I bet most people have had experiences of life, whether it's a day, a month, a year, or a relationship, or a job, or something, that they actually know what I'm talking about. Like where they were asking, what is the point of what I'm doing? I don't think it's that unusual a thing to ask. I think what's unusual is when somebody gets trapped in it as their main way of experiencing life. So the episodic ones come and go, I think, and you can usually identify circumstances. When I was 12, we moved from a place that I loved growing up in, a very small town in Oregon, and we moved to the big city in Oregon, Portland. And I had a lot of friends and I had cousins and everything there, and I knew uh, that little town very well. And I, was, I, think, I don't think I was really asking what's the point, but by the time I was in eighth grade, I was sort of wondering, what is the point? I mean, I was making friends, but it felt like they were scripted friends as opposed to the deep friends that I had where I grew up with. And it felt like um, I was doing stuff that mattered to me. I was trying to be a good student in school. And I was a good student, but the feedback starting then, you know, I was a good student when I was in fifth and sixth grade, but it had a whole different flavor to it. I was engaged and I happened to be a good student. When I was in seventh and eighth grade, I was trying to be a good student. And I was succeeding at trying to be a good student, but actually that did not hit the spot of what it felt like to be engaged as a fifth and sixth grader. So really the change, which was made for a job change for my father, and it required the movement of his wife and his five children. Um, for me, it dislocated me and I did not reconnect in the same way in those next few years in, in middle school and high school that I had before I went on okay. Um, but I would go in and out of feeling like, 
what is the point? Why am I doing this? Do I really want to go to this football game? Do I really want to go to this party? Do I want to be in the student council in the high school where people were saying you should run for a student class office or something like that? And I just thought, all right, all right, I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. It all felt like substitutes. So actually, I was living what looked like a purposeful life, but I actually experienced after that dislocation, a period of time that came and went of feeling that I wasn't sure what the point was. Like, why am I doing this? And, and I would try to make up stuff and do it. It happened again when I went to college um, because I went 3,000 miles away from home and I was at college and I went there because of other people's recommendations because I was a good high school student. Uh, they said, oh, you should go to this college and this college and this college. So I went, but actually my heart was in University of Oregon. And, and so when I disengaged and I didn't know anybody at this fancy place, I really didn't engage in that way. So I've had my own experiences of how dislocations can lead to the feeling of, even if you're doing well, quote unquote, what's the point of doing this? You sort of lose track of your heartfelt connection to what you're doing. So I think there's a lot of people that have episodic experiences. Some people, it's when they're overloaded. Like, you know people, I know people that maybe you are people that have this happen. I am a person who has this happen. If I'm too busy for too long, even if I'm getting, quote, a lot done, I start feeling like, what's the point? Why am I doing so much? Why am I working so hard? And the opposite can happen, right? Um, the opposite being, I don't have much to do. The person who actually is not doing much, that can, that I think can, perpetuate or even begin a sense of pointlessness because you're feeling like, what am I doing? What's the point of my life? You know, and then you do something a little bit and it doesn't really quite do it. And then you fall back into, I'm not doing very much. And then it's like, what's the point of my life? And so I think you can go back and forth between these things, but I think these are manipulable conditions that really can set the stage for the sense of pointlessness. And what else can do it episodically? Certain contexts, like I said, being dislocated from where you are connected. Being disconnected from a relationship that you were in. I mean, I've had a couple of patients in the past few years who when they lost their mothers, when their mothers passed away, and in one case, she was very ambivalently connected to her mother, but she was very connected to her mother. And it turns out after she, her mother passed away, she went through a period of a year where she continued to function sort of, but not the way she was before. She dropped some things she was doing, but really it's as if she had lost her fuel. It's, she had lost her connection to her mother. And she was really, it was a certain form of grief that made her feel like without my mother on earth alive, to be able to call and have a fight with, or to have a conversation with, or have something with, what's the point? And you could just, she just sunk into this. It was really difficult. I've worked with another person, a man who was in his mid fifties and he was a, you know, a, a man with a severe mental illness and he didn't have much to do with his father. But when his father passed away in his eighties, um, he went on for a long time talking to me at first, not much, but it gradually took hold until we, I realized, oh my God, the profound loss he had with his father because he had the idea that when his father was on earth, when his father was walking, he was walking. When his father traveled, 
he traveled, even if his traveling was to walk up the street and get a cup of coffee. But his father was traveling to another state or another country. But he had this feeling that the two of them were on earth together and there was a dance going on. And the two of them were quite connected, even though they never spoke. And when they did speak, he felt like his father was too judgmental towards him. And so, so these things where you lose a person or you make a move or you dislocated or you break up or there, there's a, a trauma, there would be examples I could cite and maybe you could cite of after somebody's had a real traumatic experience, a, a bad experience, they are now dislocated from their more safe and trusting connected self. And, and they disconnect from the world in a different way. It's why, you know, if you go back in my podcast and you find the one of uh, the, the young woman, Natalia Garcia, who lost her two-year-old son, and this brilliant in, inspirational talk when I interviewed her of her talking about what she did in order to not get PTSD. You could reframe that as that she did everything she could to not let herself get disconnected from what was she connected to. She emphasized the fact that she continued to live a life of exposure. And so anytime she thought, well, I, not, I don't want to do such and such, she would, her next thought became, I got to do it. And she just kept doing stuff that she was afraid of doing or that she thought would be painful to do because it might remind her of her son. And that really kept her in the game. It kept her connected and it kept her, I think, engaged. And it probably helped her not end up feeling like life is not worth living, which is something that could easily happen after you lose a child. Um, okay. Next type, if those are episodic and you go in and out of them, and it's sometimes identifiable what the causes and conditions are. The next type, I would just say, I think I've given myself to some degree as an example of this, but there's a lot of them, which is, as I wrote it down here on my paper, when someone is carrying on with what appears to be a purposeful and ordered life, but internally they experience the whole thing as pointless. And they feel like they're just going through the motions. And they don't really feel like they're owning their experience. They, they lose agency, they lose connection, but they're busy and they do stuff and they succeed at doing stuff in some cases, but they don't feel alive. And in those cases, what makes it even worse is that usually the people around them don't know they're going through that because it's invisible. I mean, unless they have a very attuned partner or family member or therapist or friend or somebody who says, you don't seem like you're very, you, you look like you're doing fine, but you don't seem like you're doing fine. You don't seem like you're doing something that's really meaningful to you. And so, and it turns out maybe it's true. And I sometimes think that, you know, some of these times that we hear about a suicide of a very high functioning executive or a, an entertainer, a comedian, you know, I think of Robin Williams. I think of people who are very functional and very productive right up to the end. And it's, a, but something has hollowed them out. Something has left them feeling like, what is the point? And they go on and they work hard and they do stuff. And, and part of what makes it worse is that actually they're really, as much as they're engaged in the world, they're incredibly alone. And people do not know that they don't think there's a point. I see this sometimes because I treat a lot of college students where a college student comes away to college for the freshman year which can be a really hard year. And, um, and then during the freshman year, after a while, you know, first they're riding on, oh, I'm in a new place. Oh, I'm a student at a new place. Oh, I met my roommate. Oh, my parents came for family weekend. 
But you get to November, December, January, February, the person's starting to think, what is the point? Because the point was, um, you know, associated with um, being where they were before. They had a whole ordered system. Now they have to have a whole new system and they don't have it and they pretend they have it. And then I end up seeing them in November or in February or something like that. And they're like, yeah, I'm getting good grades. Yeah, I have some friends from my dorm. But I don't know what the point of all this is. I just feel like there's no point. And some of them get because they're 19 years old and they're actually their brains are exploding with being incredibly smart. They, they get really philosophical and they can talk circles around me uh, about, about it. Though probably when I was 19, I could have talked circles about someone else, but now I'm not that anymore. And, um, and so they, they're, they're actually a victim of how smart they are in some cases because they can really um, out argue almost any point. Um, so these, these situations where it's mostly an internal state, but actually people keep functioning and therefore they're very much alone, they're quite isolated. Um, and, um, uh, and like I said, I think that some suicides come out of this kind of state. Then there's the third, third type of, of three main types, which I just called for the moment uh, the, total, the total pointlessness life. That's, as I wrote down, those whose lives have ground to a halt, representing a complete shutdown as part of the pointlessness of life. They're not going through the motions. They've stopped going through motions of other people. Um, and that doesn't mean they're worse off than the ones who are going through the motions. But it's sort of like now their actions look, look as if they believe their life is pointless. Their thoughts believe life is pointless. Their emotions are believe life is pointless and they live in their context as if life is pointless. They've given up often, they've given in, they've surrendered to meaninglessness and there's no life worth living. Um, and, and those people sometimes have bursts where they actually come out of it. Um, and I think sometimes these are people whose lives have shut down after a loss or a failure or a trauma and they've actually struggled and battled to overcome that and then it doesn't, they're still stuck with it. And it's just, you know, but they can't articulate that. And they're just living out the life of somebody who um, ran into a brick wall too many times. Um, and then I think there's a fourth type, which I wouldn't include with the others because it's more, uh, as I put it here, the philosophical existential thinker. Those people for whom it's a philosophical issue, but actually it's not causing the same kind of pain that I'm talking about. I mean, maybe it causes some and they tap into what it means to feel pointless. Um, and there's a, they don't have the same level of dysfunction and pain that some other people have. And they might be, you know, or, or they might have that. And, and they become poets, philosophers, artists, musicians. Uh, and they really, they are blues musicians. And they really bring pointlessness into their work or into their art and, or into their philosophy uh, but they don't necessarily be dragged down out of life with it. I, I think, you know, please um, realize that I don't think that I've made some fantastic, amazing uh, typology of these things. I'm making it up out of coal cloth and out of my experience, but just because I'm hoping that this kind of podcast will touch somebody somewhere with some ideas of something. So uh, don't, don't fact check me on this, as they say in the news. Um, on to assessment. So I'm gonna say it like this. 
I sort of, at this point, think of the state of pointlessness, even as murky and as unboundaried as it seems, because it can kind of be a takeover. Um, that it's kind of more like a fog that comes up and somebody's in a deep fog as a metaphor, um, rather than thinking of it as a discrete behavioral pattern, even though I also think it's that. It includes characteristic thoughts, emotions, behaviors, um, and it has antecedents, it has causes, it has conditions, and I think it probably has functions, which are maybe hard to discern at first. Uh, it certainly has consequences that are often unintended. Um, but I think, you know, when I start thinking about it that way, I realize, let's say I encounter a trauma in my life or a big loss or a dislocation or something that causes me to disconnect from my genuine experience of here and now reality. I get caught in thinking about the future. I get caught in thinking about the past. It's replaying. I get invaded by these things. You know, there, I almost feel like when the people I've worked with had my own experiences of this, it's like under the pressure of those situations and you battle with them, but a fog gets put out into your atmosphere around you so that now you're sort of trapped in something bigger than yourself. And it's, and it's fog. When I say fog, I think that I mean that to capture that it's kind of hard to get your fingers around the boundaries of it and do something about it. It's something you're living in day after day and it's fog-like and, and even, but actually what helps me in thinking about that is that the experience of being inside of a fog, even though there's a lot of discrete things that you go through every day, it's like too big to even realize what you're inside. But if you're outside it, it's why it's very different to have this episodically than to get stuck in it, is that when you're outside it and you look from the outside in and say, oh my God, that person is caught in a fog state of pointlessness. Where did, and then you start asking questions like, where did that come from? Or what are the causes and conditions? Or I wonder what purpose that's serving for that person. You can start to ask sensible questions if you can sort of elevate yourself outside of the fog of pointlessness. When you're in it, it's sort of like trying to beat your way out of a paper bag. It's really hard to do it. Um, okay. There's a biology to it. I mean, I, I don't know what that biology is, but I would just, you know, the way Linehan at the beginning of DBT hypothesized that borderline personality disorder comes ab about because of a certain set of biological characteristics in the neurobiology and also a certain set of environmental characteristics. I, my guess is that a deeper understanding of this is that we would understand that when people who tend to get caught in these states of pointlessness, there probably is a biology to it and it might overlap or be almost the same thing as the uh, experience of depression, uh, which certainly has a biology to it, or the experience of severe anxiety, which has a biology to it. So I just assume that there is, and that one of the approaches is to try to do whatever you can to uh, reset the biology in the person who is uh, experiencing this. So let me get more specific about some possible causes and conditions. When I was thinking about different people I've known and worked with that have had these kind of states, certainly major depression and probably bipolar depression. But depression, you know, major depression 
often gives rise to the question, what's the point? What's the point of getting up? What's the point of doing anything? What's the point of calling a friend? What's the point of asking for help? What's the point of getting dressed today? What's the point of cleaning my apartment? So it's very much part of the experience of depression. I just don't think everybody who has pointlessness also has all the other features of major depression, but I do think major depression is a sort of causal factor. Chronic severe anxiety. The person who can't move forward in life because of how many worries they have about life. They just get stuck in an anxious condition of one kind or another, like social anxiety, where you pretty much have to give up on a social life if you're really stuck with that and you don't get it treated and it doesn't get better. So you can really end up feeling, what is the point of living with this much anxiety? What's the point of living when I can't have a social life? What's the point of living when I can't go outside very much or I'm always afraid I'm gonna get hit by something or hurt by somebody? So I think anxiety and then PTSD um, very much can, if you're trapped, PTSD, like anorexia, different kind of trap. I mean, you're really trapped because you've now avoided so many things and you've escaped from so many things that you're living in avoidance and you're living in escape and, you, and all it takes is to mention something related to your trauma or, be, or experience that and boom, everything blows up for you and it's really hard to tolerate. So you have to shut down lots of things. Um, and when you shut down, you can end up as a secondary state, get into a what's the point kind of state. Unresolved grief, as I've mentioned. Doing things that are not aligned with your own values. I think is a, like a disconnect. It's a dislocation from yourself. If you're doing something, but actually what you're doing is not related very much to what matters to you. I think that that can wear on you in time and you start to feel, what is the point? I'm doing something and it's okay. I'm making some money. I have a friend. I'm married. I'm doing this or that. But actually you're not doing things that are aligned with your own values and your own goals. And I think then you can naturally start to wonder what's the point. As I mentioned, being overloaded, you can start to feel what's the point. Being overwhelmed, being crowded in life, being enmeshed with others too much. Heading into the holiday season, I've had a couple people talk to me about what, what makes the holidays go so badly for them is they go home and they're involved with everybody all the time and they can't stand it. They like their family, they like to see everybody, but they like to see everybody for an hour or two, not for five days, you know? And then that, that becomes a problem. Being too alone, um, being out of touch with what your underlying state of emotions is. All right, now look, you also, those of you within DBT world who know about behavioral chains, behavioral chain analysis, you could try to put um, understanding pointlessness as part of your evaluation in the context of a chain and say, what are the vulnerability factors that make somebody more vulnerable to experiencing pointlessness? What are the prompting events that cause that? What are the linking thoughts that lead to a feeling of pointlessness? What are the linking emotions and what are the linking actions? Um, and what is the point of pointlessness? You know, what, like what's the function of pointlessness? From, from a psychoanalytic viewpoint, which I used to, my original model was psychoanalysis that I was trained in and did before I got to DBT. You know, you might think that this experience of oneself 
as being in a, a state of pointlessness is a whole defensive formation mm. that you really can't tolerate certain states of minds that are, that are sort of closer to the core. And so you end up elevating yourself, removing yourself from painful things that you don't want to think about or things that you love in order to dampen them down. And you end up in a defensive formation saying, oh, there's no point in life. Oh, there's no point in life, which then keeps you disengaged, which might be the best you can tolerate for the time being. So I do think that there's functions you can sometimes see, um, like avoidance of emotions that would arise if somebody engages in things. Let's say you've been disappointed enough at times, and then you think of doing something. And then you realize as you begin to do it, this could fail too. This could fall apart. This could be a temporary thing that's not going to work for me. After all, nothing else has ever worked for me. And therefore, already you just retreat back into a state of pointlessness rather than engage in a way that exposes you to the possibility of painful disappointment or hurt. Um, you could be a, a defensive formation against your whole history rather than think about what has happened to you in your life, rather than think about losses and traumas you've been through, rather than think about disappointments that have affected you. It might be that you settle into a kind of this middle ground of this fog of pointlessness and actually it dulls all of those things the way an addiction would dull all of those things. And in that respect, there is another connection between these states and an addiction situation. Um, yeah, so solutions, let me jump into solutions. Acceptance as a set of solutions. Um, you know, I think it's just huge with anything like this, whether it's chronic pain, an addiction, uh, self-harm, uh, almost anything to start out with seeing if you can cultivate a sense that this is what it is. This is what's happening right now because already you're better off. You're already more engaged with life if you're engaged with the experience of pointlessness. It's a little paradoxical, but if you can really let, just let yourself feel that and be in it, as opposed to always be fighting this sense of pointlessness and wondering what the answer is, searching for the answer. It's like, just settle into it, like just chill. Just chill, just be there, be there, do nothing for long enough to experience the, the pointlessness in its details. So you can recognize it, you can investigate it, you can allow it to happen. You can sort of see it coming and going so that you don't anymore think this is me. I'm not pointless. Things don't have to be pointless, but this pointlessness is a fog that comes and goes in me the way a cloud crosses the sky. And as soon as you can think that and think, wow, today I'm more pointless than usual. Today I'm a little less pointless. Now you do something, you, go, you leave your house and you go on a walk and you go do something that's of interest to you, even if it's for 20 minutes, it's like, oh, for those 20 minutes, life wasn't pointless. Um, that's important to me, uh, doing that. Um, Seeing it from the outside and accepting the shape of your pointlessness. Like with this young woman that I met that was with the anorexia. I really thought too with her. I mean, I thought it, the, in the, the first meeting we had, I think it was somewhat helpful to her. Just the fact that she had um, um, the chance to look at 
her sense of how her pointlessness drove her to anorexia, it became the point. She created a point, but it was a, it was a point that was not satisfying. It wasn't because it wasn't truly, it, did, it wasn't her deep, wise mind connection to be as thin as possible. It was something else. It was an artificial thing. It was like, it was like people who get straight A's in school, but they feel that life's pointless because they've put all their energy into getting straight A's rather than being there in, in a more of a genuinely engaged uh, way. Um, then I think part of acceptance is to assume that this state has a place. Stop trying to run away from it right away. There'll be ways to try to change it. I'm going to try to get to talk about, I'm just, oh my gosh, time is running out. I'm going to, I think it could be helpful when you're looking at your own pointlessness, your state, that you accept that it's interconnected with other people who you're close to. Like it's interconnected with your family. I think it was helpful to that anorexic young woman to talk about how her sense of pointlessness grew out of her perception of what was going on in her family. It wasn't just her own thing that came out of nowhere. It actually was an interface she was interdependent with other people in her family um, in a way that shaped her sense of what's the point of life. What's the point of life? To keep secrets for your parents about infidelity? What's the point of life? To keep secrets from your siblings? What's the point of life when your parents are breaking up and, and, and you know, there's an earthquake happening and everybody seems like it's okay? I mean, you, there's just, once you see it in context, it may be painful but it spreads it a little bit so that you might have a different view of it. As much as possible, if, if, if in accepting it, you can see the impermanence, even if it's long-term, the impermanence of pointlessness, the fact that it will be there, but it's not necessarily there for good, that you're in a state for a reason, but actually that state is evolving. And even if you don't think it's changing, everything's impermanent and every day it's different than the day before. And you never know when a certain day is going to change everything. You know, I'll just say, you know, I'm just realizing now what I'll do in that first podcast in January. Uh, <laughs> I have more to say than I thought about this. So I'm going to be, I'm going to come back to this, but I'll just say one more thing. Uh, and it relates back to the holidays just before I end. Um, I was consulting to a program. I do a lot of consulting on Skype to uh, DBT kinds of programs. And they were, one of the programs across the country was telling me in a residential program about how this young uh, woman patient of theirs could only be there for 30 days due to insurance. And now 20 days were gone, or actually 21 days were gone. She had nine days to go. And they were feeling like, she was feeling like, what's the point? What? I mean, if I haven't gotten better now, I have nine more days and then I'm out of here. What's the point? Why should I do anything that you guys are saying? And I must say the therapist, I think, had a little bit the same feeling. Like, oh my God, we're already at day number 21 and not much has changed. So I said, you know, I said, I just want you to realize going into the holidays, if you were Jewish, you're, you're aware that the whole world changed and was saved by a miracle over a period of eight days. And you've got nine here, you know, so that's one extra day. So actually everything could change. I mean, who knows the miracle of 
of lights, the miracle of Hanukkah and the miracle of, of the Maccabees winning this uh, battle and the miracle of uh, the, the, the uh, candles continuing with enough oil when there wasn't supposed to be enough oil. I said that could happen to her tomorrow. So let's figure out how to get that to happen. And then I said, and not only that, if you're Christian, I mean, it all happened in one day. I mean, it was like Jesus was born, right? And the whole world changed that day. So who knows what could happen even in your next session with this person. You may hit that one moment that this person is going to be catapulted out of this particular state that she's in. So, you know, keep hope, maintain hope. There's all kinds of things that can happen even in one day. Okay, so um, I hope there's something in this was helpful. And uh, I'll re I'm gonna, I think I'm going to return to this topic or I'll see what it has morphed into by January uh, 9th, which is the next podcast I'll have. I'll be putting it on my website and everything. So everybody have a really good holiday, whatever the holidays mean to you. I hope you really, I hope they happen the way you hope. Okay. Adios. Feliz Navidad. Goodbye.